Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to thepetecallendershow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. Let's talk steel. As in, Pete is steel here. I'm just kidding. No. U.S. steel. U.S. steel. As in, U.S. still here. No, okay, never mind. All right, so Nippon Steel Corporation, Japan's largest steel production company, announced yesterday morning that it will acquire Pittsburgh-based U.S. Steel in an all-cash deal valued at $55 per share. That works out to be about $14 billion. At $55 in cash, the deal is a 40% premium to the closing price of U.S. Steel shares on Friday. So if you were a stockholder in U.S. Steel, this is going to be pretty, pretty, pretty good for you. The U.S. is currently the world's fourth top producer of crude steel after China, India, and Japan. We're number four. The transition is expected to close in the second or third quarter of the next year and is also subject to approval by U.S. Steel's shareholders. Nippon Steel Corporation's buyout deal comes just months after U.S. Steel rejected an offer from its rival, Cleveland Cliffs, Inc., for $7.25 billion. So they got twice as much, basically, from Nippon Steel. Okay, so this has now raised um, some concerns. Uh, the uh, the recently lucid John Fetterman uh, said he would work to block this deal from going through because it's a uh, you know steel industry and um, union jobs and that sort of thing, and also uh, this is uh, you know steel considered to be crucial infrastructure, national security reasons, right? You. You don't want to outsource ownership of uh, this material, which is vital to producing war material, right? Ammo, uh, guns, uh, artillery, rockets, I don't know, like all of it, right? Tanks and planes, boats, all of it. Need a lot of steel. Steel is a, is a critical resource uh, for national security. That's the argument. And so... It's not going to China, right? It's it's a Japanese company. And as far as I know, they're not planning to close it down and move it. I don't know why you would buy the buy the plant and all the stuff for $14 billion and then shut it down. I don't know why you would do that. But I don't know. Maybe they would. Maybe they close that plant and move it someplace else. I don't know. I've been involved... Uh, or I've been employed at places where we got bought and they said they weren't going to fire people and then they fired everybody. So not everybody. I mean, me, which might as well have been everybody. But um, because I couldn't work with anybody for, I mean, anyway, doesn't matter. Point is, corporations, the guys that run these uh, corporations, they're going to make their own decisions and they're not going to let us know. They're not going to, they're not going to, you know, give us the heads up 
on what their plans are. And so whatever they're saying publicly is just what they're saying publicly right now. We have no idea what the future holds for them. And if there is a long-term plan that they secretly want to, you know, take all of the uh, steel manufacturing and shut it all down and, and send it all back to Japan. But I think then that that would raise uh, the prospects for what's this other company that I mentioned, Cleveland Cliffs Inc. Right. Wouldn't they be able to then compete better if Japan is making it over there and having to ship it here? Um. There's also a related story here. This fellow's name is Patrick Hedger, um, executive director of the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. Um, and he talks about protectionism, tariffs and the like, right? Because steel is a is a pretty heavily regulated product. Um, He says the most protected part of our defense industry is shipbuilding. He says it undermines every national security protectionist argument. We get fewer things for the cost delivered much later than promised. And he's he's pointing out the $13 billion price tag for this aircraft carrier, right? The Ford, I believe is what it's called. Uh, the most expensive warship in Navy history. It was originally projected to cost $10.5 billion, but problems with the advanced technologies drove up the cost and delayed its deployment for four years. So it came in four years late and $3 billion over budget. And so he's pointing out, like, this is the most protected part of our defense industry, shipbuilding, and if you're making the argument that, you know, for national security purposes, this should be done and it should be protected, you know, tariffs and the like, this heavily protected uh, industry, well, you're getting, you're getting late delivery and over-budget products, which uh, in looking into some of the details here, I came across this fella, and I don't know his name here. I think it's, uh, no, he doesn't tell us his name. But he appears to be military, and he's doing uh, one of these TikTok videos where he does basically he does like a Q and A, you know, with himself. Have you ever seen these types of videos? It's, all the kids are doing them nowadays. Um, and so, like, one guy is asking the questions, and one guy is answering the questions. It's the same guy, but he does a little bit different affectation to his voice. Okay, but it, you'll be able to understand it. Um, it, it. It comes across, and so he's talking about these. The U.S. aircraft carriers. We just finished the $18 billion aircraft carrier. Man, the bill on that one was a little higher than I expected, but uh, great. What's it going to be able to do? Single-handedly topple nations. Seems kind of excessive. Well, we built 11. (laughs) My God, what are we going to do with all those? (laughs) Pretty much whatever we want. Okay, hold well, with $18 billion, it's probably got a massive crew. It's going to hold thousands of people. And these people will all be highly trained, disciplined, and skilled. It's going to be 18 to 25-year-old functional alcoholics. <laughs> what? What? We're going to train some of them how to make Starbucks. That that has nothing to do with anything I just said, but uh, that's, that sounds like a cool perk for sure. Sometimes when we drop the people off, 
they're gonna consume literally all of the eggs and bacon and alcohol in other nations consume all of it what, what do you mean there will be none left <laughs> you just want the other countries to hate us don't you i've got 11 aircraft carriers so i don't have to care what anybody else thinks <laughs> there you go that guy's a military guy and he's doing this riff but like that's that is kind of what we're talking about here are we not by the way there are going to be a lot of calls for protectionism on steel, I suspect. Um, I've seen some today. Um, people making these arguments that um, we shouldn't have, uh, we shouldn't let this Japanese publicly traded company, we should not allow that Japanese company to buy U.S. steel because it's too important, right? The commodity is too important. The resource and the ingredient is too important. But what happens if you don't let them buy it? Does the company go out of business? Do we have to keep just importing steel from Japan? Because they make more of it than we do. And like as I understand it, like Japan's, like, that's kind of a small country. And they're on an island, you know? And like, I don't even know if there's anywhere left to build. They may just be cranking out a whole bunch of steel and sending it all over the place because like, they've already built every, on every piece of land they can build on because they're such a small country. I don't know. I may be incorrect on that. But what's the alternative? And I came across Avik Roy, uh, a piece he wrote in 2012, and it was right after the South Carolina presidential primary, and it has to do with the steel industry particularly Georgetown Steel in South Carolina. All right, do the current world events have you wondering whether we are teetering on the edge of catastrophe? Are you concerned it's going to reach our shores? Okay, so what are you doing about your concerns? Let me help. Carolina Readiness Supply at carolinareadiness.com. Whether you're looking to expand your emergency preparedness supplies or you have no idea where to even begin, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you. Food, water purifiers, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies even. Because being prepared is just smart. Carolina Readiness Supply has 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials that you'll need for any kind of emergency. In Waynesville and always at carolinareadiness.com, veteran-owned Carolina readiness supply will you be ready when the lights go out all right so this is from 2012 uh personal connection i had arrived uh in Asheville the day after the south carolina primary this was my first day at the radio station in Asheville, january 23rd 2012 avik roy writing about newt gingrich's win in south carolina over mitt romney you remember that? Newt Gingrich's comeback victory can be attributed to many things, his performance in the debate, Mitt's tax returns, but it all started when Newt Gingrich and Rick Perry tore into Mitt Romney's involvement in Bain Capital. They called, uh, Perry called him a vulture capitalist who looted working-class livelihoods in a greedy quest for profit. And one of the stories that they used to attack Romney was Georgetown Steel in South Carolina. The story of this plant, it started over 100 years ago. Production, steel production, had been one of the great engines of American industrial growth. Uh, U.S. Steel 
founded in 1901 as a consolidation of several mid-sized manufacturers, quickly became the largest producer of steel in the world and was the first corporation in history with a market capitalization of more than $1 billion. In the aftermath of the New Deal, however, labor unions began to flex their muscles. In 1959, the United Steelworkers of America launched a devastating nationwide strike that shut down 85% of all U.S. steel production for four months. As a result of the effects that the strike was having on the national economy, and even on the nation's military capabilities, President Eisenhower invoked the Taft-Hartley Act and forced the Union to end the strike. While Eisenhower's move appeared to be a setback for Union power, the Unions were able to extract significant concessions from the steel industry, such as automatic annual wage increases and new pension and health benefits. This outcome was to have long-term consequences for steel manufacturing across the whole country. Beginning in 1959, American consumers of steel, like automakers, right, they resolved to become less vulnerable to future disruptions in their supply of raw materials. So for the first time, they began importing from abroad. They found steel from emerging economies like Japan and South Korea was just as good as American steel, but way cheaper. Fast forward about uh, 10, 15 years. You're into the 70s now, and the American steel industry is hemorrhaging business to foreign competitors. Manufacturers compensated uh, by laying off workers, which then created a new problem, right? Experiencing the same dynamic that federal entitlements do now, manufacturers were forced with a growing number of retirees' bloated pensions. And which they were funding with, uh, without, uh, uh, with output rather from a shrinking number of active workers. This is like this is the Social Security uh, problem, Medicare problem. Right, not enough workers to prop up those who are drawing out the benefits. The Carter administration tried to prop up the industry, so it gave it three hundred million dollars in loan guarantees. Five steel companies got it. The, uh, the biggest one, Wisconsin Steel, actually went bankrupt soon after getting the bailout, which is classic GovCo, right? Successive presidents also tried and failed to prop up the steel industry. Ronald Reagan imposed quotas on imported steel. Bill Clinton provided a billion dollars in loan guarantees to the industry. George W. Bush enacted tariffs on foreign steel. None of it worked. Over a seven-year period in the 90s, more than 40 U.S. steel manufacturers went belly up. Virtually every single one of them were union shops. In comes Bain Capital, early 90s. They buy up a Kansas City-based company called Worldwide Grinding Systems, uh, which I think, uh, I think I've seen some of their TikTok videos. The... It's a different kind. of. Anyway, um, they renamed it GS Technologies, Bain then buys the company in South Carolina uh, called Georgetown Steel. They combine it with Worldwide, and they call it GS Industries, right? One of the biggest challenges for GS was its debt load, because this is what leveraged buyouts are all about. Um, by the way, this is one of the problems that iHeartRadio has. 
also a Bain Capital project. Um, lots and lots of debt. GS's workforce, shortly after the merger, they go on strike. 1997, its first walkout since it took part in the, the great strike of 1959. They, they resist Bain Capital's attempts to rework the benefits package. That was 97. Four years later, company's bankrupt. Out of business. They changed hands a couple more times after that. Um, they may, and I believe the mill might actually still be operational just under a different company name at this point. He goes on to conclude, Avik Roy, uh, by the way, author of The Apothecary. Um, he's also one of the freedom conservative guys that start, started the Freedom Cons. Anyway, the challenges facing American manufacturing are sometimes beyond the reach of the nation's ablest business managers. Labor unions repeatedly block needed reforms. Emerging economies can produce many goods at a fraction of the price that American workers do. Global free trade increases American prosperity by making more goods cheaper for American consumers, but it also disrupts the lives of those who worked for once prosperous American manufacturers. Right? So I, I, as I said, I think there are going to be a lot of calls for people to try to block this deal with the Japanese company. But if they're keeping the plant open... I mean, it, it seems like this might be the best thing for U.S. Steel and Pittsburgh. No? Got a message here from Bob who says, Only government makes excuses that a declining cost industry causes cost overruns. I guess that's regarding the, uh, the ship that came in way over budget. Never be surprised if OSHA vests are worn over camo fatigues. That uh, yeah, <laughs> ah, just a weird. It's just a weird image. I'm going to wear camo, but then I'm going to put on the, one of the safety vests. Do I want to be seen, or do I not want to be seen? What? Mike, welcome to the program. Hey, Mike. Hi, P. How are you? Good. What's going on? Just wanted to talk about my father-in-law. He's he's long time passed away, but back in the early '30s, he worked in for a famous steel company called Roebling Steel in New Jersey. Uh, they, that company built the Brooklyn Bridge, and my father-in-law uh, worked on the steel for the uh, Golden Gate Bridge. So they're a very well-known company. And after he was, when he retired, he, he had his pension, and then all of a sudden the company went under because of, I guess, competition, and that was the end of his pension. He worked his whole life there. So, but he, what he... He lost his pension, is what you're saying, or no? Yeah, the pension was gone. Everything yeah. was gone. Yeah, so I mean, the place, it, the place became a museum. Now it's a, uh, it's it, it was a steel town. Yeah, and now it's just a museum. Uh, is it a museum to like steel, like the steel industry, or is like but just not for that for that company? Oh, for the company, I got you. That, I mean, they were famous. I, I said the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> right, right. No, I got you. But yeah. No, Mike, I, I appreciate the call. I mean, that's the, yeah, I mean, the, the, the problem there is that the market gets distorted. You've got, comp- you've got competition coming in. And, yeah, we, are, we were building all of the steel, using it all as the heyday for steel, absolutely. But, you know, the rest of the world, it kind of blew themselves up, right? So they didn't have a lot of heavy industry <laughs> left after World War II, and we did. And so we were in a... Unique position to capitalize on it. But then as those other countries 
got built back up, now they were able to compete. So this is, you know, the creative destruction of capitalism. Um, I appreciate the call. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Um, the state of Tennessee is suing BlackRock, the world's largest financial asset manager. This is a first-of-its-kind lawsuit. They are accused of harming consumers through its ESG investment strategy. According to the lawsuit filed in state court yesterday, first obtained by Fox Business, BlackRock has articulated two inconsistent positions. One, prioritizing financial returns, and the other, prioritizing investment policies to combat climate change. They are in conflict. While BlackRock has faced widespread opposition over its so-called environmental, social, and governance strategy, ESG, Tennessee's action is the first legal challenge to accuse BlackRock of violating consumer protection laws. The Attorney General of Tennessee, Jonathan Scrimetti, says that uh, this deprived consumers of the ability to make an informed choice. Some public statements show a company that focuses exclusively on return on investment. Other statements show a company that gives special consideration to environmental factors. Right, so which is it? How am I to know how you're using my money? How am I to know what your priority is? Is it ESG? Does that mean lower returns? What's the, high, what's the higher priority? If it's ROI, return on investment, then that means you would probably be investing in some fossil fuel companies, right? Or no? Remember, it was BlackRock that did the first hit on Exxon under this ESG shakedown scheme. And they were like, you got to put a bunch of environmentalists on your board of directors. And then BlackRock votes your shares. BlackRock manages these funds, right? And then they vote your shares. They vote the shares of the pension. They vote the shares. And then they direct policy through the board level. They manage $9 trillion worth of assets worldwide. And that allows them to force companies into adopting certain policies. Critics have specifically argued that ESG-focused asset managers like BlackRock, State Street's another one, Vanguard's another one, that they are sidestepping their legally mandated fiduciary duty to consider the well-being of clients whose money they manage. Promoting climate policies may lead to worse financial performance given the high profitability of fossil fuel industry stocks. BlackRock has admitted that promoting ESG aims like companies radically reducing their carbon output, right? They, that this can conflict with a particular fund's financial performance. The lawsuit says, quote, it is thus only fair that consumers know if the hard-earned funds they invest will be leveraged to BlackRock's ESG ends rather than to maximizing financial returns. They, base, they are accusing BlackRock of misleading cust, uh, its customers, its consumers. And they say that that constitutes deceptive acts and practices under the Tennessee Consumer Protection Act. Now, of course, BlackRock denies this. But the lawsuit also highlights BlackRock CEO Larry Fink 
who has publicly stated that his firm asks companies that it holds investments in to set greenhouse gas reduction targets. And then BlackRock polices that through voting and pressure campaigns. Now, Black, uh, BlackRock's CEO, Larry Fink, the appropriately named one, um, he has tried to kind of uh, uh, hedge his bets a little bit, no pun intended, like pull, walk this back a little bit. In June, he said he was ashamed of being part of this conversation, which I'm not even really sure what he meant by that. But they're trying to do some cleanup on this. But yeah, it seems like you've got, it seems like you've got competing statements when you say ROI is our top priority or ESG is the top priority because they're going to be in conflict. You can't hold both of those views. Speaking of inconsistent positions and BlackRock, Nikki Haley um, has apparently flipped on her trans surgeries position. Remember, at the uh, she had said that uh, if a young kid wants to get uh, wants to pursue transing, she said the government and the law should stay out of that. And then she got just just gutted during the last debate by DeSantis. And that's, and it's obviously been hurting her. She must be getting crushed uh, among conservatives uh, because now she has just come out and, and said uh, there should be federal involvement, that you should not have any, uh, any of this, uh, these gender uh, transitioning drugs and stuff if you're a kid or whatever. So she flipped on this. And here's the pro- that's the problem with Nikki Haley. She's now taken both sides of this, uh, of this uh, issue Within a matter of what, three weeks? So did she have the wrong opinion back then or does or is she wrong now? Which was her real opinion? And this is precisely the problem I have with her is I don't know what her principles actually are. She seems to cave on all sorts of things. And it doesn't even matter to me whether she's caving to the right position that I that I hold. Because I don't hold any positions that I believe are wrong. But if she's caving because she got beat up by DeSantis had a debate. Like who? Who else is she going to cave to media? She's going to cave to media and Democrats. But I repeat myself that, and that's my concern: is I, I can't, I can't trust her not to cave. That is, this is not a good move. Just stick with the original. It's just like the anonymous accounts thing. Just stick with your original position, unless, of course, you just were winging that thing. Oh my gosh, what a mess! She also caved to DeSantis. She agreed to debate him. In Iowa or something, or New Hampshire. She first said no, and then they they just started hammering away at her, and she's like, okay, fine. Uh, Once again. Here's an email from Thomas. Uh, Growing up outside Gary, Indiana, a city created for the U.S. Steel Corporation, I naturally see this sale as a big mistake. I worked at U.S. Steel, Gary Works, while going to college in the late 60s, we had 33,000 men clocking in and out over three shifts, 24 hours a day. Now there are less than a third of jobs left. A top-tier nation that does not own its own heavy, large manufacturing capability is doomed for extinction. Letting our steel industry go overseas ranks with some of the other national stupid decisions like letting our textile industry move to China and Southeast Asia. Um, Well, I'm, I'm kind of curious about the language there. Letting a company move. You don't, like, like the government doesn't own that company. Right? And what, the more protectionism that you employ, 
the more it hurts Americans. Slapping tariffs and stuff, you get into trade wars and the like. But the uh, like, my view on the textile industry is that eventually that comes back because eventually, because if you look at the data for um, global poverty, there has been like there there is not another time in human history where more people now have a higher standard of living, and that is a testament to free market capitalism, to global trade, free trade. Relative peace, right? That's the like that's the success story of the last fifty years, seventy years, and um, I think that I mean it goes back obviously to the founding of America and the free market system. But the, the since World War II and the creation of the European Union, which was basically like whatever your thoughts are about it, but it, like it's done one thing pretty well, which is to keep Europe from like attacking each other again. <laughs> right to make them all interdependent on each other, so this way you can't go to war with each other. Um, but I eventually, like, I remember everybody was complaining when I was a kid. Everybody was complaining about everything getting made in Mexico. I remember the guy, uh, my best friend's father. Uh, he worked at the. He was a mechanic, and he worked at the local uh, Chevy dealership, and um, he he was complaining one time about how all of the boxes that they're getting, it all says, uh, Hecho and Mexico is what he kept saying. Hecho and Mexico. <laughs> it's like, Hecho made in Mexico. And there he, and then, and now where you see stuff made in China. I remember when there was a lot of, uh, panic over the Japanese buying all of the stores and stuff. And remember they bought Rockefeller center, the Japanese panic of the eighties that they were buying everything. Remember the movie gung ho, and then, of course, what did, what did Japan do? They enacted all sorts of stupid government policies, and they've had like two decades of like the lost decades, right? But the businesses can, like the businesses need to go where they're going to be profitable. Otherwise, they're going to go out of business. Unless, of course, you're saying that the government should run the businesses or provide, what, direct payouts, pay, like bailouts. We should subsidize businesses. I'm all for, I'm all for, you know, uh, easing regulatory burdens and such. But, you know, at some point, if they can be made, it's called competitive advantages, right? If you can make this stuff cheaper someplace else, the businesses are going to do that. And eventually, I think, like, I remember when all of the textile stuff started going to different countries, Vietnam, right? But now I see stuff coming in from Bangladesh. I see, I don't know, I see different countries on the tags of, of clothing that I never used to see. And at some point, when the rising tide lifts those boats in those societies, right, then their competitive advantage goes away. They no longer can, they, they no longer can undercut steel prices in America. And so then steel comes back. The green shoots, you know, the economic rebirth. These cycles, they, they take, you know, decades to play out, I think. Um, this was from Fred. He says, Dollar Tree has raised prices for all items from just a dollar to ne- uh, new everyday price of a dollar twenty-five. That's inflation and not six percent. If my math is correct, your math is correct. It is not six percent because I think that would be like six cents. That'd be twenty-five percent. This is twenty-five cents. I think if I check my math on that, I think that's I think that's accurate. Um, also, bit of breaking news: U.S. Capitol Police. 
arrested 60 people in connection with an anti-Israel protest in the Capitol Rotunda.、Uh, the Capitol Police say they were aware of a group's potential plan to sign up to take a tour of the Capitol building and then start a protest. I think, though,、uh, I think their cover was blown when they all showed up wearing the, the little headscarfs or the neckscarfs or whatever. They all looked like they were Antifa dressed in black. They say it's against the law to demonstrate inside the congressional building, so we brought in additional officers to be prepared for the moment. And as soon as、uh, they got screened, they entered the building, and then as soon as they broke the law, they were immediately arrested. I'm sure they will suffer the same fate as the J6ers, right? Yeah. All right, I'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.